we're going to be talking about, we're going to be doing a study now, and I have uh, no, no, you know, I, I know this is going to go on for quite a long time. We're going to do a study of the book of John. And I know sometimes we'll break for things like Christmas and some Christmas messages and Easter and different times, and there'll be rabbit trails, so just get ready for it and stop complaining about my rabbit trails. They're going to come. Just be ready for it. Uh, Hippity hop all the way down. And we're going to talk about today, in the beginning, John. The, John is the gospel of belief. John writes that. He tells us, I write, write this so that you will believe. That's his goal. Right? So a lot of people look at the Gospel of John and it's ordered differently and it's, and it's done a little differently. And that's fine because that's not his point. He's writing that we'll believe. And so I want to read the five verses that we're going to go over. It's in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, in deciding to, to st- do a study on the book of John, I started uh, studying uh, quite a bit ago, kind of pre-reading and, and looking at stuff and reading uh, different things and looking into the, the, the Greek language and all of that stuff that you kind of do ahead of time to familiarize yourself and, and looking at the scope of the book. All of a sudden I started realizing, and, and, and it really hit me even this week, I may have bit off more than I can chew. This is a very daunting book. And even these first five verses I mean, they could easily be three sermons. Now, when I say something like that, people come up and say, well, why don't you make them three sermons? Because we'd be here for five years in the book of John. You have to move. We have to keep moving. And so uh, as hard as it, hard as it is, uh, I leave you know, stuff that you know, you know, I just think, oh, this is really good, but no, I can't, I can't. Just leave it, leave it on the table in, in my office. But when I decided to teach, teach John, I realized this is so deep. It's, it's like if you're going to go from here to, to Patrick, to the airport here in Newport News, and you, and, you, and you order an Uber, right? And this is what shows up. And you suddenly say, hey, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. This is a little bit of overkill. And actually, that kind of looks like what we think John looked like. So it's pretty close. I just need a ride to the airport so I can fly to Florida. And John says, no, no, you're not. You're going to go on a much greater journey than you thought you were going on. I'm going to take you past the moon. I'm going to take you past the Milky Way. I'm going to take you to the edge of the galaxy, to infinity and beyond is where I'm going to take you, right? I love me some Buzz Lightyear. I'm going to drop you off at heaven, and you're going to see stuff. You're going to see things that will blow your mind. And this is what studying the book of John is like. It's staggering. It's deep. It's the deep end of the pool. There is no shallow end here. No sha-sha-shallow, right? And these sentences, I don't know why I'm saying this stuff. I don't have it written down. It just pops in my head, and I have poor control. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because I know right now my wife is wincing. And just like, shut up, shut up. Okay, these sentences are linguistic doorways into eternity. And I say that, I mean, I I know how that sounds, but I, I say this on purpose because they really are. These sentences open up depth and breadth that we can hardly imagine at times. And I think about this because this is a very strange way. We just read, I should take that off there. 
We just read, you know, the first five verses. And it's a strange way to begin a story of someone's life. You know, when you think about it, if you're writing a biography of someone's life, would you begin it this way? Because people don't usually write like this. It's very profound. It's very sweeping. You know, Matthew, he begins with a genealogy. He sets the stage with a genealogy, right? And then if you look at, look at Mark, Mark points to the prophecies about John the baptizer and his role in introducing Jesus. Luke begins with an explanation of why he's writing, and then he jumps right into the, to the miraculous events around Jesus' birth. They're kind of the things that you would expect someone if they were going to tell you about the life of somebody. But what John does, I mean, I'm thinking, what is he doing here? What is he up to? And the reason is because this is not primarily a biography. John is a man whose life was totally changed by meeting Jesus. And he writes to show the glory of Jesus so that the readers, their lives will be changed also. John's thinking of you and me as he writes. And he's thinking, I was changed. I want to give them the information that changed me so, so they can be changed. So, so you, Bob, you can be changed, and you can be changed, and you can be changed, and you can be changed. All of us can be changed by this. He's a disciple of Jesus, and he focused on a singular task, awakening the faith in people, deepening their worship of Jesus Christ. And he has this in mind, awakening faith and deepening worship. And so he's going to show us this already in this passage. He's going to, he's going to meet those goals. We're going to look at three things, and I'll be showing them up uh, on the screen. We're going to look at just, just an overall view. What does the text say? And then we're, going to, then we're going to look at what is John teaching us. And then we're going to take that next step and say, how do we apply it? How does this apply to my life? right here, right now. Okay, so first thing, what does the text say? First thing I want you to see here, the words relationship to time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, this automatically, any, any Jewish person, any person really who reads this, if you think about it, this is going to take you right back to Genesis 1. The beginning. In the beginning. And this reminds us of the word, the, the words of Genesis. And John is saying here that the word, the logos it is, was prior to the beginning. So he's making a claim already. He's making a claim when he talks about how the, the word is its relationship to time. Because the biggest part of creation, the thing that I think I think that when people argue about creation and how it works and all this stuff is they miss totally the biggest part of creation is that God created time. God did this and this, and it was a day, and it was a night, a night and a day. First day, God worked. Second day, God worked. This is the edge. See these orange lines? This, I, if I go any further, I disappear from view. Third, what is going on, Lord? <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. Seventh, what's going on? God created time. He created time. That's the big thing. There was no time before that. Now, we're time-bound creatures. So as soon as we start to try to understand the concept that there's no time, it, it, you can't. You just can't do it. It blows your mind. It's, it's something we can't grasp because it's too foreign to us. But time was invented at the beginning. Was. The word in the beginning was the word. Was is in the past tense. So that before the present tense, even ever had a time to be present tense in, the word was already past tense. 
Okay, right now, English teachers, English majors are going, what? What are you saying? Yeah, past tense, before time started, the word was. All right, so that's the word's relationship to time. Now we talk about the word's relationship to God. The word is with God, the logos. The, the logos that what, what for many, many Greeks they would define as the impersonal principle that is governing the universe. This logos is with God. The word is separate from God. Because the word is with God. The Greek, the Greek preposition there, pros, and, I, and I'm, I'm quoting some very big scholars on this. It indicates this, place or accompaniment, but also disposition or orientation. So when he says with God, it means he's with him, but he's not him. He's different in some way. And i got to tread carefully there because he is God, but there is something different. And this causes scholars to say, take this word, to take this phrase and say, this means an active relationship rather than mere coexistence. Okay, an active relationship. Something's happening. Something's happening. Um, yesterday I went and visited my grandchildren, and uh, they are super into Star Wars. Uh, they're three, three and five, and they have their play lightsabers, you know. And so we, we, got, we had an active relationship. They chased me around with lightsabers, and then I'd turn and, you know, like a crate dragon or something, and then they'd turn and run, and I would chase them. And it was very active. Why? Stuff was happening. So this is what's being said here when it said, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It means there's an active relationship. It points to the relationship between God and the Word, and also it distinguishes them from each other. A.T. Robertson is a great Greek scholar. He says the accusative case here means he thinks that God and Jesus are face-to-face, -face, actively face-to-face. That type of relationship. The Word was God. Now, not just with God, but the Word is God. Separate from God, and yet the same as God. Now, this is the beginnings as, as Christian theologians as they started working out the concept of the Trinity because suddenly we have He's with God and He is God. And how do we explain that? And then the Holy Spirit is brought in because that's developed further later. Now, if you have any friends who are Jehovah Witnesses, they will uh, quote some, 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 oh, the Greek says that the word is a God. All right? I just want to tell you that's wrong. It, the, the, the argument behind it is kind of the argument first-year Greek students make when they make a big mistake. And, and it has been proven wrong so many times. If you're interested in that, I can send you tons of information, more than you want to know. But verse 3 kind of wipes it out as we get to, to verse 3 anyway. So we'll continue on. The Word's relationship to creation. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. All right? So now he's saying this. He's telling us all things were made through Him and nothing that was created was before Him. Nothing that was made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, He did it all. God spoke creation into existence. Jesus, we're told, is the Word. Everything is through Him. And this verse totally refutes the idea that Jehovah Witnesses or Muslims would say that Jesus is a created being because He's before all creation. He was before creation. Final thing I want you to see now, we're hustling over this, but bear with me, we're going to get a little deeper. The Word's relationship to humanity. 
All right? In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's going to use these themes of light and life, and they're going to play out throughout Scripture. John highlights these three themes in his gospel, and we studied 1 John a year or so ago. In 1 John, he highlights those themes of light and darkness. So they're going to be developed much more. And so the text tells us something. The text tells us, the word's relationship to time, the word's relationship to God, the word's relationship to creation, the word's relationship to humanity, all that relationship that the word, the Logos, Jesus has. And now, what does it teach us? All right? Getting a little deeper, what is it going to teach us? Because now we're going to get a glimpse at the private life of God. That's what I meant when I, I said John's going to take us in this little spaceship and we're going to go to the edge of the universe and beyond and I'm going to drop you off at heaven because we're going to see God is going to give us a glimpse of the inner workings of the Godhead. You know, he's going to show it to us because he wants us to know like some sort of cosmic cribs, you know. We get to see what's really going on inside. What is he like? What is he like? And, and when we see that, this can give us a whole new perspective on life. You know, it's like, I don't know if you've ever done this, if you've ever taken off in an airplane over some, a place that you know very well. I remember taking off one time from Patrick Henry Airport. And as the plane took off, I was like, oh, there's Walmart. There's Costco. Oh, man, there's the corner. And I could see the corner of Warwick Boulevard and Oyster Point Road. And I could see that further down Warwick Boulevard, there was an accident. And people were pulling up to, to Warwick Boulevard on Oyster Point, and they were turning because they couldn't see the accident that was just like half a mile down that had blocked the road. And they were going to turn, and they were going to all stack up. And I can remember thinking, oh, if I could just communicate with them, don't turn right there, right? Then they would know because I can see it. God wants us to now, he, wants, he says, I'm going to give you my view. I'm going to let you see the view from eternity. So John is teaching us what was going on in eternity past. And what was going on in eternity past? The first thing he's teaching us that was going on in eternity past that there, is that there was loving communication. There was this working together, this active relationship that was based on love. He talks about it a little later, and we'll get to it in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself, is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Right? Now, I started thinking about this. I just, when I first was studying this, I looked in the closest relationship with the Father. What does that mean? And so I went, I went to the Greek. I like to go to that sometimes. And the word there is the word for bosom, the word for chest. But chest doesn't describe it. Bosom, it means that it's something very intimate. It's the most intimate thing that a Hebrew person could think of in that day. John just thought, tried to think of the most intimate, intimate thing he could think of, and he, he thinks of someone laying next to someone's, someone's chest. Now, we can look at that, you know, but think about it. How many people in your life, let's say you lay down on the floor. Let's say you lay down on your couch. Let's say you lay down on your bed. How many people can just walk up to you, lay down, and snuggle up? Right, and I used the word. I couldn't think of. I thought "snuggle" such a goofy word. But if, but if I said "hug," it wouldn't. Eh, no, somebody who would just come right into right into you. How many people could do that right now in your life? It's a small number. For some, I mean, maybe for some people, it's no one. 
No one could do that. For me, my wife, uh, my kids, when they were little, not so much, they've moved on from me now, right? Not so much now. But not, I mean, you know, not fellow church members, not friends, so remember that. In case next time I lay down here, I don't want anybody to run them, oh, Bob, let me hug you. No, no, right? Not many people could because that's a very personal thing. The Son is in the bosom of the Father. The most personal, intimate thing John could think of. He goes, that's where the Son is. And He's letting us see it. He's giving us a glimpse of what's going on in the Godhead. Obviously, the Father and the Son had no bodies, so it's some sort of a spiritual soul unity, a oneness. Oneness that comes from having the same love, the same values, the same goals, perfect communication. A oneness in thought, in love, in action. Sometimes in, in a marriage or a very special relationship, you'll get a taste of this. And even though we're sinful people, we can still get a glimpse of it. And those times can be incredible the oneness with someone can be very... And it oftentimes is a fleeting glimpse because we're sinful people. But here we have two perfect holy people, two perfect holy persons giving each other, giving themselves to each other, utterly and totally knowing each other. The joy here can be indescribable. Our fleeting glimpses of it are incredible. They lived it. They lived it. And so, they had mutual submission, mutual understanding, mutual joy, mutual love, mutual hope, mutual happiness that they shared together. In John 17, Jesus talks about the glory that we had before the world began. What is He talking about there? He's talking about that oneness. He's talking about that closeness, that intimacy. So John is painting a picture here. He's letting us get a glimpse at the inner workings of heaven. And if, if you're, I always want to make these strong statements. If you're human, you know, this should strike a chord in you. I want, I want that. I want that in my life. I want that with someone. Who doesn't want that? Right? It strikes a chord. This is not something that's boring. It's like, I can remember when I was young and I had a close friend, he was my best friend, and we were just like so, we were best friends, right? And, and I'm running out the door one time and, and I'm, I said, I'm, I'm going to see Kurt. And uh, my mom said, well, what are you and Kurt going to do? I said, I don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to do it together. Because that's what, that's what made it fun. It didn't matter what we did, Right? We'd stand out, there's a dirt mound where some construction was going, and we'd say, well, what are we going to do? And I'd throw, throw a rock, and he'd throw a rock, you know, and all of a sudden I'd say, I bet I can hit that bulldozer from here with this rock. And all of a sudden it's a competition, and we're laughing, and we're carrying on, and one of us is cheating, and it was never me. It didn't matter what we did. Because there was a closeness, there was a oneness, there was a love there. He was my best friend. And that's a faint echo of what is going on in the Godhead. 
So John's teaching us about what's going on in eternity past. There's this loving communication, this, this, this relationship that's very active. And now he's going to teach us how they, how they created together. I was reading a scholar, and he was saying, you want to know how Jesus felt at creation? He said, read part of, of Proverbs 8. It's not, it's not a total correlation. But listen to this. He, he says, not a direct correlation, but listen to what expresses. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Joy, rejoicing, delight. Now this refers to wisdom, but also it gives us that feeling of what Jesus and God felt at creation. God spoke and creation happened. And they were creating together. We learn in other passages the Holy Spirit was involved too. But he says, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Imagine this. Imagine this. I mean, have you doing this with someone that you love to do something with? Something you love to do with someone you love to do things with. Pouring out, creating in love, communication and pleasure and delighting. I was reading a couple of authors, they described this like a circle of mirrors. The sun and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in a ring of inexpressible joy. And the light just keeps reflecting and going and going. Never losing its brightness, gaining. And they decided, let's make man in our image. Let's create a race of persons who can step into this circle of joy that we have. God, we get a glimpse of heaven that John says, they have this incredible relationship, this incredible... T- and God says, let's make man and bring them in. That's what you were created for. That's what you were created for. To join with the Father and the Son and the Spirit and other brothers and other sisters in Christ and reflect this light and create this joy and this beauty and this delight. That is what we're made for. And so they decided... We're going to create rational, relational people because they're in our image. They're capable of communicating and being little mirrors that can reflect and bathe in our joy and in our relationship. There's an analogy of this that comes from our own hearts, from our own lives. Because sharing beautiful things creates more and more joy. Musicians know that firsthand. Artists know that firsthand. A couple of weeks ago, um, the, the musicians were kind of just, they'd been practicing and they, and they quit and they just started jamming. And, 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 and you know, the, the guitar and the electric guitar and the drums and it was kind of a bluesy feel, it was kind of a cool thing. And, they, and I was walking in, dropping off uh, some of the stuff for the, for the, for the service in, in an hour or two and, and, they, and I just lis- listened and it was beautiful. And it made me happy to hear it. It was joyful. There were no words. It was just three people creating something where the sum is greater than the, the parts. You know, it just, it was beautiful. And that's, that's what God is saying. He's saying, this is, this is what happens. See, he lets us know that this is what it's like when you create something and it gives you joy. 
when an artist paints a picture and goes, man, I love this. What do they want? They, oh, I'll go put it in, the, in, in, a, in, you know, in my bathroom where hardly anyone will see it. No, I'm going to put it in a museum. I want people to see it because it brings joy. Beauty brings joy. And we know that. We feel it. God says, that's because I made you like me. That's because I made you like me. The Father and the Son. We want, to, we want more to step into this ring of joy. The greatest joy for God and the greatest joy for us is to share with others, to expand the ring of joy and bring more people in. Now, this can be, sound kind of poetic, sound kind of grand, but how does it change the way I live? It's a friend of mine named Lon Solomon. He would always in his sermon say, okay, so what? So what? That's a good question to ask. So how does this apply to us? Okay, it sounds great. Who's against joy, right? Who's against delight? Who's against love and communication and oneness? Nobody. So how, does this, how do we apply this to us? Well, the first thing is, what we've just learned proves something that we all know deep inside. It proves that love is the foundation of the universe. Love is the foundation of all things because basically the essence of ultimate reality is relating and communication. Now, there's other popular views that address this issue. One says there's no creator. The universe is an accident. So that fundamentally, the universe is totally impersonal. Richard Dawkins said this. He said, we are just grown-up germs, jumped-up apes. There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directing forces of any kind. There's no life after death. There's no foundation for ethics, no meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. Doesn't that sound, don't you want that on your tombstone? That sounds exciting. And so, you know, you, you expand that. Let's make that, let's bring that down to our level. So when you, when you fall in love, you have to think. I realize that right now how I feel is because the synapses that were firing down the right side of my brain are now firing down the left side of my brain in a different way. And they're causing me to think this is a real feeling. I have no choice in this. And I know it is simply a chemical response that I am programmed to have. Now, I know sometimes I, you know, I'll talk uh, other places, and, and, and there's always these smart Alex that, um, oh, what did you think? <laughs> yeah. So disappointed. <laughs> there's always these smart Alex that go, yeah, I like that. I like that. I like the idea that I'm just programmed to have no choice. Yeah, really? Okay, try it when you fall in love with somebody. Go to that person that you really care about and say, you know, even though I have no choice in this and I know that I'm just programmed to do this and it's just a chemical response, I feel some affection for you. That is step one in how to end a relationship right there, right? Right? I can't help it. It's just my brain going crazy. So, <laughs> you know, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. We feel it. We know in our hearts that doesn't work. And what we have learned proves that love is the foundation of the universe. Another view, and it's kind of new agey for, for lack of words, you know, it says things like get in touch with your inner goodness, the inner spark, the inner force. God is nature. God is a life force, you know. Uh, uh, it looks different from what Dawkins and, and, and atheists would say, but they're very much alike because they both will say the universe is impersonal. They both will say God is not a person. They both will say God is not someone who gets angry, 
or gets happy or loves or communicates or weeps with you or weeps over you or intervenes in your life or makes a commitment to you or blesses you or makes a promise to you. God is not that. Totally impersonal. Personal. And both will say that when we die, we're like a raindrop falling into the ocean, just returning back to nature, totally absorbed. But the Christian view is very different. The Christian view says, no, it's a personal relationship. What John has just taught us is that the whole basis, the the foundation of, of the universe is love based on this personal, intimate, loving, delighting relationship. And God is not nature. We're not nature. We're beyond nature. We're in a relationship with an eternally loving parent, an eternally loving father, eternally loving mother, and with sisters and brothers. And it's a family. It's a family. If I think there's one thing the church has just totally lost in this, is that we are family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we treat each other sometimes in terrible ways, in ways we wouldn't treat brothers and sisters that we truly love. But we're in this relationship. And when we die, we return to a father waiting with open arms and laughter. Because he's overjoyed to be with us face to face. In our heart of hearts, we know love is the foundation of the universe. It's what we want. It's what we need. In the beginning, there was this withness. Jesus and the Father. And it is what we have as followers of Jesus Christ. Because what do we know? We know that what we've been given, we've been, we've been given the sinlessness of Christ as his children. We've been adopted into this family so that we automatically get into the circle, get into the ring. It's what we have. This is our destiny. In the beginning, love spoke It was the foundation of the universe. Now, when you begin to think that through, what does that do? That tells you there's purpose. That tells you there's meaning. That tells you there's worth. These flow. These flow from these ideas that, that John is giving us in these first five verses. And so love is the foundation of the universe. The second thing that we can apply to our lives, knowing that love is the foundation of the universe confirms what we've always known all along. Secondly, we understand the gospel of salvation better. We understand what happened because we're getting a glimpse of the inner workings and we're going to see things that maybe we haven't thought about. Now, I talked about we're like mirrors. Mirrors have no light on their own. If the mirror turns away from the light, there's only darkness. And that's what we did as human beings. We sought to be our own masters, to go our own ways, to be our own captain and commander, right? You know, when I hear, one time, I, I remember in grad school, uh, sitting with a, uh, in a literature class, and we were talking about this, and it just sounded so exciting. Yes, I am my own man. I stand alone. You know, all that kind of, here I take my stand, blah, blah, blah. And it sounds exciting and adventurous and powerful, but it leads to frustration and failure and meaninglessness and death. And this is the struggle we face. This is the struggle we face. And Scripture says, but God. I always love that. Changes. Everything gets flipped. Jesus comes, lives the life we could not live, stands in our place, pays our price, and the Father turns away. And And the problem is, 
we, we just think of this merely as some sort of financial transaction. And, and it, there are financial words used when we talk about Jesus and what happened on the cross and all that. But it, not merely that. But to think of it in light of the eternal, the internal, I should say, nature of God is what we've been discussing. This helps us understand better. When we think about the Father and the Son and the Spirit in, in this circle of love, this circle of communication and, and, and that has been going on and on and on and on, the, the, the delight and the joy and the laughter. Think of it as a parent to voluntarily give up your child. Here, we have a parent and a child experiencing perfect bliss all the time. And then there's not just a giving up, but the hardest part to imagine is there's a rejection, a turning away, the depth of the pain. The closer the relationship, the greater the pain when it is shattered. This is not anything new. We all know this. We all know this but let's take it a step farther from the times when we've experienced pain, when we've been shattered, and imagine God, His Son, His beloved Son, giving up voluntarily the act of turning away. You know, after this sermon, if someone came up to me and said, you know, I hated that sermon. I'm never coming back to this church again. Or someone at home said, I hated this sermon. I'll never, I'll never stream your service again. That would hurt. It would. It would I'd be upset and hurt, sorrow. But you know, if my wife said to me, I hated that sermon. I'll never come back to this church again. That would hurt a lot more. Right? That would hurt way more. Why? Because the closer, the more intimate the relationship, then the, the greater the pain. And so we, now we think of God, Jesus, what Jesus felt on the cross, the rejection of the Father. When we begin to see what the Father meant to the Son and what the Son meant to the Father. Now, let me stop there in that sentence. When we begin to see what the Father meant to the Son and the Son meant to the Father, we begin to see what we've already just talked about, this, this intimate relation, this incredible relationship, and how much they love each other and enjoy each other, and delight in each other, and submit to each other, and, and, and bless each other, and glorify each other, all of that. We see how much they meant to each other, and then we see the incredible cost they both bear, willingly would bear, out of their great love for us. Us. This is astounding. This is astounding. I love my kids. I love my grandkids. But if somebody said, will you give up one of your grandkids so someone else? No, don't, don't even finish the sentence. Someone else can live. Don't care. Someone else, nope, nope. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. But God, the Father, and the Son had this incredible love for us. This incredible love for us that they gave up what they had. Jesus did not say, why in my name should I die for these people? Look at them. They screw everything up. They blame everyone else. 
They're messing up my creation. Why would I die for them? What did he, do? What did he say? I rejoice to do your will, Father. I rejoice to do your will. And as we think about this, and as we meditate on this, and as we grasp this, let me tell you something. It will empower you. It will heal you. It will fill you with joy and tears. It will deepen the idea that you are saved. You know, that word has been so cliche, so it just, I don't even like to say it anymore. But this will make that word come, it'll flesh it out and make it ring true. You are a daughter. You are a son of the living God. You are invited into this circle of joy, and the foundation of it is love. And the Father loves the Son. The Father is enamored by Him. The Father cannot help but delight in the Son. And this is how He feels about you. He's enamored with you. He delights in you. I can think of times when I just was like overcome with delight for my kids. Just inexpressible joy and, and happiness and pride and love for my children. I can think of those times. I could, you ask me afterwards, I'll start, boop, boop, boop. I can name them. I can name them. I delighted in them because the love was so deep and so intimate. And that's how God feels. He feels about you more so than I could ever feel about my own child. He delights in you. He's enamored with you. The moment you say, what Jesus did for me, I want that. The moment you say, I accept him, I trust him as my savior, I want to live for him with my life, then God says, this is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Just what he said about Jesus, he says about you. He says that about you. I mean, I can imagine, uh, you know, Peter coming up and saying, wow, God, you know, you've done so much for Bob. And he's such a screw up. And God's saying, it's my beloved son. I am well pleased in him. He is washed in the blood. He has the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm crazy about him. I'm crazy about him. And I, and I, and I don't want it to sound irreverent. But it's true, God's crazy about you. In whom I am well pleased. So now we're in the circle of joy. Now we begin to understand the love the Father has for the Son and the, lo and the love the Son has for the Father. It's the same love that He has for us. And, and, and we begin to sense that and understand that. And, you know, we're getting little glimpses of it. But if we meditate on it, we think about it, we pray about it, we study it, we get more. Because we're humans, we're sinful. You know, so we struggle. Why do, why do we struggle with temptation? Why do we struggle with boredom? Why do we struggle with emptiness inside? And on and on and on. It's because we're not grasping the love the Father had for the Son, and the Son had for the Father, and the love they have for us, for me, for you. It's incredible. And so what happens when we struggle with those things? The scripture tells us that that's the time where, where we repent. It's the beginning. Repentance is the beginning of faith and love, the initial repentance for salvation, and then the repentance that follows after. It's, it's the, it's the uh, beginning of the relationship, and it's the maintaining of the relationship. It keeps the relationship 
going and vibrant and strong so that we don't turn our mirror away from the light. We turn back and keep reflecting and glorifying and laughing and delighting in joy. Now, that's what John wants us to see in those first five verses. He wants us to be awestruck at this God that we serve who loves us and blown away by the fact that He does love us. And when we grasp that, it changes us. Now, we're going to keep going in John, and he's just going to pile it on. It's going to be just more and more and more. It's just going to be more delight and more joy as we see what God is doing for us and to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. Father, even feeble human beings, scholars, theologians, linguists, they read this first First chapter of John, say it's some of the greatest writing ever written. And so, Father, as we just dip our toes in the deep end of the pool, we pray that you would fill us with your delight and your, and your joy and your love, that you would impress upon us that even as we have sang, you are good. And Lord, when the tough times come and when hard things happen, we can cling to that because we know we have a foundation that cannot be moved. It's founded, founded because of your love for us. Thank you for empowering John to write this. Thank you that we have the ability to comprehend it and know that we are loved. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for coming and being with us. Um, I encourage you to remember some of those things that are coming up this week, especially Kids Club Wednesday. We can still use some volunteers and parents. We encourage you to bring your kids. And then this Wednesday is the Blood Drive, November the 4th. You know, if you're just all, all uh, upset about having to vote on the third and the election and whatever's going on, just come here. They give you new fresh blood. I don't know why I said that. Um, and then on the 15th, we're going to have a prayer meeting. Sunday night, the 15th, a prayer, a prayer meeting, that sounds, we're, we're, we're going to have a time of open prayer from 6 to 7. You come in, there's, there's just a 20, about 20 or so uh, slides. They flash every two minutes. You pray for the slides as they go by. Then when you're done, you just leave. It takes about 20 minutes to half an hour, half an hour or so, whatever it is. And uh, um, just for us to be praying, I mean, because we need to pray for our country and our church and ourselves. All right, great. Thanks for coming. God bless you, and you are dismissed.